All right, we're in 1 Peter. If you want to get to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25 is where we'll start. So make your way to 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. <clears throat> the, the donut line is, uh, is, is backing up over here. <laughs> get your last phrase donut before... Before they're taken. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. First uh, Peter 2, 18 to 25. I'm going to go read the passage and then pray for our time. It says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but, now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it, to be challenged and encouraged by its truths. Um, God, we just pray for our time in it this morning, that as we proclaim uh, the gospel and how it applies to our work, that you would be gracious to us and uh, stir our hearts with affection for you, Lord Jesus. Uh, we thank you for this time that you've set apart for us, Lord, to be instructed by uh, your word, that you would uh, apply it to our hearts, Lord, it is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so I've got some memes to share with you. It's a meme, it's a meme Sunday, so be, be ready. Meme Sunday. First, this is, this, is some, this is a you had one job memes. These are a few you had one job memes. You had one job. This is one job we needed you to do. We just needed two straight lines, and we're, we're off the bus. We got, got that one. We got this one. We had one job, gutter guy. One job. Just make it go to the hole. Okay, kids. Kids, you had, you had one job here. What's wrong? Anybody, kids, what's wrong? Anybody know? You're the best teacher ever. Is there anything wrong? Is there anything wrong with it? You're the best teacher ever. Anybody? What's that? Glaring grammatical error. What is it? Yes, you are the best teacher ever. Not your. Right? You need. People write like that. Yeah. Right? All kinds of problems. All right. You had one job to tell your teacher that they're the best, and you messed up. All right, next. This is fun. Thirst. <laughs> I, guess they, you were, I guess they were parched, right? They needed something to drink. Uh, <laughs> thirst. Oh, yeah. You had one job. What? One job, guys. What is going What Right? What is going on? Right? All right, last one. 
You had one job. Put the pepperonis on the pizza. This is Sprouts. This is Sprouts pizza, man. Dang, Sprouts. That's not a cheap pizza. Uh, I don't know. Three ninety nine for an eight ounce. Uh, that's, you, you don't see anything wrong with this pizza? It's a pepperoni pizza. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, what's the plural of pepperoni? Pepperonis? Is it pepperonis? Or pepperoni? No? Pepperoni pizza? Pepperon. Et pepperon. Is it pepperon? Okay. You had one job. Okay, well, we're talking about work today, um, as you might have heard from the verses, and uh, just the uncomfortable truth here from, from Peter that we are to be subject to our bosses. Um, so we're going to jump straight into this. Uh, verses 18 and 20 give us this, uh, this challenge from Peter that our goal or our role as um, people who are subject to bosses uh, is to be subject to them, uh, actually to, to entrust ourselves to them and to obey uh, so we're going to be looking at that, and then we're also going to be looking at uh, the example that Christ gives for this. Peter points to Jesus and the way Jesus fulfilled his job in life, his calling, his role, um, to instruct us on how we should be fulfilling our job and our role. Last week, uh, the beginning of Peter's argument for this section was that we ought to, you might remember me spending a lot of time on this, wage war right, against the sin of our flesh, and the conduct, and to conduct ourselves honorably in the world. He challenged us pretty strong, with strong wording, that we should wage war against the sin within us, right? That this was the battle we should be taking up, is to wage war against the sin that is in us. And he said this for a reason. He, he gave this graphic language for us for a purpose, that the most important thing that we can be doing is taking care of what God is doing inside of us, right? The most important thing we can be doing is take, taking care of what God is doing in us, and he said this because um, he's speaking to people, uh, he's speaking about people who do not follow Jesus, glorifying God on the day of visitation, right? He challenged us to wage war against the fleshly desires of our soul so that when the day of visitation comes, the people that are accusing you of evil, wrongly, right, of following a different God than the people of the land, um, the people that are accusing you of, em- uh, of, of evil, um, would respond and glorify God when the Lord visits them. And so you might, remember from, uh, you might remember that from verses 11 and 12, that he's challenging us to, to look within and battle the, the sin that is within you so that those around you might see what God is doing in you in spite of the fact that you're called an evildoer, in spite of the fact that you're cast down by the society that is around you, that they may look at you and glorify your God instead of the gods that they're serving. Um, Peter's again writing to the area of Turkey, and in this region they're serving not the Christian God, right? Like this is not the God they're serving. And so the people of the land are looking at Christians and saying, you are evildoers. You're not serving the pantheon of gods. You're serving a one God. And so you are evil because of your beliefs. And so he challenges them. Don't worry about judging them. Worry about waging war within yourself so that as they watch you being mistreated or spoken ill of, they can see your good deeds and have hope in the God that you serve. So ultimately, the call that that Peter is challenging this church with is that if you want to evangelize those around you, 
then pay attention to what God is doing inside of you. This war that is waging inside of you is the most important thing you can do to reach out to those that are around you. And so he's talking about three different areas of life, and he started with talking about this idea in respect to the emperor, like the Roman emperor at the time, and all the governors that are sent out by the emperor to enforce the laws of the emperor within the land. So he said, in respect to the emperor, you should even honor the emperor just as you honor every person that is made in the image of God, right? As we honor all people because they're image bearers of our God, you should so then also honor the emperor as one that God has put in place for peace within the land. And you should also honor those that he sends as governors over the land. So the first week we talked about that, that you should pay attention to the war within your soul, right? You should wage war against sin within you so that those outside of you, as they watch you respond to your government and your, the people around you, they see a person filled with compassion and grace and holiness in the one true God. And so he's calling them to this. And, and this week he's actually bringing that, um, that interaction, uh, that relational interaction from a place that is a little bit more vague to a little place that's a little more personal. Okay, and the next week we're going to get a little bit even more personal when we, when we talk about marriage. But this week we're talking about people that you might have authority over you that you regularly interact with, namely bosses. Okay, um, I've got my undercover boss picture. Yeah, get bosses. Just think about this. God's the ultimate undercover boss. He's always there. He's always undercover. He's right there. What's that? Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. What's that? What? Well, the president was last week. That's, that's like the emperor, yeah. right? Yeah, so I, I don't really talk to Joe Biden that often. Does anybody have, have any regular interaction with Joe? You got, that's right. You, got, you did get a letter from him for being an awesome student. That's cool. So anyway, so I don't have regular interaction with uh, Joe Biden. I don't have very regular interaction with Ron DeSantis. I don't have regular interaction with my county commissioners, right? Like the governors of the land, I don't have this regular interaction with, right? But I do have regular interaction with my uh, immediate superior in, in accounting, right? I meet with, the, uh, with her every single week, right? Have a phone call, check up on how we're doing accounting-wise, on projects that I'm responsible for. I've got to check in with that person every single week. I've got regular interaction with that person. Uh, I've got regular interaction with my employees here at the coffee shop, or rather in this context, they have regular interaction with me, right? Like, these are people, right, we're stepping in a little closer from governors and emperors of the land to people you regularly are under authority. Makes it a little bit more personal. Makes it a little bit harder, right? Um, and so Peter is speaking to this, um, this closer group of people. Um, so it's inevitable that at some point in your life, in this closer group of people that are over, over you or in authority over you, you're going to be placed under authority of someone that you don't get along with. Anyone testify to that? Anyone, anyone ever had a boss that uh, they didn't like? Uh, anyone ever have a boss they vehemently did not, dis did not agree with? Anyone ever have uh, maybe a teacher that you weren't so stoked about being under, right? You don't get to pick all of your teachers. As you get like later on in, you know, in your career or in your education, you do kind of get to pick and choose a little bit, but like, undergrad, you know, college, you're not picking who's, who's teaching you sociology. You just get who you get, you know what I mean? Um, and so your teachers that you get, your coaches in some places, uh, your employers, maybe a pastor, sorry. Um, you know, like, 
You don't necessarily get to choose whose authority you fall under. And once you're under that authority, you're, you're like kind of in this position where there's something going on there and, and you have to operate under that. And so Peter challenges us with these aspects of, of people that are, that, that are over, over us in authority. Peter says this about how we are to operate under this authority that is closer and more daily. He says this in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Dang, my Seinfeld heart is aching. You know, like my, my complain about everything and everyone is hurting, right? My, my American you know, prideful heart that just wants to complain about every little thing that's happening is hurting with this. It says, whether unjust or gentle, be subject to your masters. Not just obey them, but with all respect. That's the part that's like, all right. I know some of you hear that part, and you're like, I can obey them, but I respect them? That's rough. Um, okay, so we have to deal with a few things contextually uh, with the verse before we continue to apply it to kind of our modern time as we fast forward. Um, so first of all, servants. First word, servants. Um, we have to talk about the difference between slavery in this time, of the time of Peter as he's writing it, and slavery today, or what, we, what we're trying to equate in there so you understand where I'm coming from with this. And so I need to say a few things. Uh, first of all, I need to say, not all slavery is equal across nations and generations, okay? So we, we just have to recognize that slavery as a system is a dynamic topic, okay? A system of slavery today is different than a system of slavery 2,000 years ago, uh, is different than a, sla than a slavery 200 years ago, right? The, the systems of slavery are not all created equal. They are very different, and so we need to say that. Every system of slavery that has existed is a complex economic, political arrangement that is present in a culture, okay? So given that, we have to better understand the context of what Peter is speaking into to then apply it forward to where we're at and to understand that, like, just because we say slavery isn't equal across all generations and across all places, okay? Um, so the system of slavery that we're looking at today, that is 2,000 years ago, <laughs> The system of slavery that Peter is writing into uh, is one in which slaves could be teachers, musicians, doctors. Uh, slaves could actually own other slaves, so they had some sort of ability to have, a, you know, like a ranking of slavery in that. Um, they could even buy their, buy their freedom if they wanted to. So there could be a place where if they rose up enough um, and saved enough money, they could actually buy their, their selves manumission is what it's called. Um, so we like to kind of like pat ourselves on the back with that, with this, this phrase a little bit, and say, well, see, it wasn't as bad back then. It's more like the employee-employer relationship back then. Slavery back then, not so tough, which isn't totally true. <laughs> okay, while it is true that slavery of this time could be professional roles and had more rights than different slavery systems that we see operating even today and operating in our country in the past, we do know that while the Greco-Roman system is more like an employer-employee relationship, we shouldn't automatically give it give its system a full approval in any way. It was still fraught with injustice. Slaves could be beaten, branded, abused, 
bought, uh, while they could buy freedom, it was very rare that they were able to do that, especially for those who were enduring in hard labor. So we look back at it, and it's just it's a sticky mess. And so you can't just color this whole thing with one kind of broad stroke and say slavery is this way. No, because every culture and every time has, has a difference of how, how things have been applied. So we should not uh, compare one era of slavery against another as some sort of framework for approval or disapproval of a system itself. So, for example, uh, sadly, right, in America, there were Christian slave owners who were arguing from passages like this that because slavery was discussed in the scripture, that it was a system that was okay to have and actually justified slavery on the basis of a verse like this, slaves be subject to your masters, without reading the full context, nor the people that it was written to, and understanding what we're talking about here. So, for example, again, in America, we had Christian slave owners saying that slaves could be subject to their masters on the basis of a verse like this. This is not what these passages are advocating for. Um, we know that just by reading the rest of the verses surrounding. It's very, very simple. And also knowing what, again, what Peter is addressing. Remember, Peter is addressing Christians, okay? He is addressing Christians in whatever station that they find themselves in, okay? He addresses Christians in a nation that is run by an emperor who is in a culture that is persecuting Christians for their belief. He's writing to Christians in that context. He's writing to Christians who have come to Christ while they are enslaved. They don't have a particular means to buy their, buy their way out of slavery. He's writing to them. So here's the addressing specifically a Christian slave. Peter does not, like Paul does, address uh, masters like we see him do. In, in Paul's passage about servants and masters, he says this in Colossians 4.1. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In Ephesians 6, 9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So Peter is addressing Christians despite what station they're in. He is not addressing masters and saying, See, because the system of slavery is approved, you can just treat your slaves as everyone else treats their slaves. No. He's calling Christian slave owners to be upright in their treatment of their slaves as if they were a brother in Christ, as if they were an employee that deserves rights and respect, and as if, right, honor everybody, as if they're made in the image of God. So, with that context, this is what Peter says to Christians who are in the region of Turkey and under slavery. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Do good uh, uh, to, uh, sorry. To, to not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Why? Why would he call Christian slaves who are in a, in a place that's not right? I mean, they, they need to be in a place of freedom, right? Like they need to be able to have more rights as people who are made in the image of God. I think we'd all agree with that, that we desire that for them. That's just not the system they're in, right? And so Jesus says to them, while you're in this, treat your master with respect, with all respect, whether unjust or not. Why? 
This is why. Because our chief goal as believers is not justice for ourselves, but rather grace for our enemies. Our chief goal as believers is not justice for ourselves, but rather grace for our enemies. If we're going to be people that follow a God who came and died for those who were his enemies, right? Who shed his blood on the cross for those who were against him, then how can we take all of our life's effort and put it around focusing on our empowerment alone? That's not the position we've been given. God says that we should, our chief goal should be the ju- not, our, not our own justice, but rather grace for our enemies. We know we did not receive justice from God. We didn't. If we would have received justice from God, we would have been obliterated. Okay, it would have been wa- washed off the face of the earth, like the muck and mire that we are in our fleshly sin. But instead, we received grace and not justice. And so Peter can boldly say to the Christian who is enslaved in this time, listen, I'm sorry that I can't buy every slave's, uh, save slave's freedom, right? Peter is not in a position to provide financially to all the slaves in the region of Turkey and say, I've freed you with my money, right? He isn't in that position. But he has something greater and more powerful to point them to, and that is the example of Christ Jesus. So he says to them, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, whether the good or gentle, or to the unjust. He goes on to describe it in verse 19. He says, For this is a gracious thing, it's a gracious thing to, uh, to, to be subject to an unjust master. That's a gracious thing. He says it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, he goes on to explain it further. He says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Right? If you're sinning, against the person that's in authority over you, whether it's your teacher, your boss, or, or, your, uh, or your employer, or whoever this may be, and they punish you, are you under persecution, or are you just not obeying, right? So often, we look at the pain and toil we're going through, and we blame it on someone that is above us, when actually, we're the ones causing some problems, not looking at our own heart, Right? So Peter says, for what credit is is it to you that when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I'm not going to sit up here and pretend that this is an easy word to hear from Peter. It's not. I mean, we are privileged Americans that can stand in this building without fear of persecution or fear of someone banging on our door and kicking us out in any way, right? This is the comfort that we live in, to proclaim the gospel in this context. And that's just not something that's afforded to the rest of the church around the world. They are enslaved, uh, abused, uh, looked down on, persecuted for their faith, and yet boldly doing good to those around them, waiting for an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Lord Jesus unto their enemies, right? And so we need to be really careful that we don't call it persecution when we're disciplined for disobedience, right? 
Like, we, we can't look at our suffering that we've brought on ourselves and go, man, the man is just holding me down. Like, no. Accept what's going on in your, in your heart. Wage war against the sin that is within you. That those who are looking around you might glorify God when he visits them. Your heart ought to be for your enemies. As much as Jesus' heart was for his enemies, that he would die on a cross for them, so too our heart must also be for those who are around us, those who are a little bit closer to us, right? Those who are in authority over us. This word gracious uh, in verses 19 and 20 um, is, is equated to a reward. It's a reward to you. When mindful of God, you endure suffering and sorrow. It's a credit to you when you suffer, when you do good and suffer and endure it. It is a reward to you in the sight of God when this has come upon you. I guarantee when we arrive in heaven, I mean, it talks about this, like the martyrs are called out for a special level of glory for what they endured. It is a reward. We're going to look and celebrate and say, these are the ones that went to death for the name of Jesus. I pray that none of us are among that, right? I pray that you don't suffer that. We're not looking to suffer a martyr's death. But for those that did and those that do and those that will, we will praise God for the power of Christ Jesus that rose up within them, that they would say, Christ is Lord, not Caesar. We're going to give them honor. And we're going to praise Jesus for the power that rose up in them. It is a reward for them to participate in that suffering. So Peter challenges this group of believers, even if they're in slavery, to do good. Not that they might receive a reward that is fleshly, but rather that their enemies, those that are against Christ at this moment, might look in and see what their hope is, that their hope is eternal, that their hope is beyond this life. And that they might, too, uh, glorify God in the time of visitation. Peter turns in the rest of this section, or this passage, uh, to call us to just consider the foundation of why we should take up this kind of response and it's simply looking at Jesus. And I'm not going to expand a bunch on what is said here. I'm just going to slowly read through it and talk through what, uh, what Peter writes to um, the churches here. He says the reason that you should embrace this kind of suffering, the reason you should embrace being, uh, being persecuted when you do good, right, is because this is exactly what Jesus did. This is precisely how Jesus was obedient to the calling that he was given. 1 Peter 2, 21. Why should you do this? Because, for, the first word, for. To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might also follow in his steps. To this, right? This is suffering for the good that you do. Suffering in spite of the good that you do under unjust authority, right? This is what you've been called to because Christ also suffered for you, leaving this exact example for you. And he kind of bases the rest of this passage off of Isaiah 53. So if you want to read like in tandem with this later, just go to Isaiah 53 
and read through Isaiah 53 and compare it to 1 Peter 2, 22 to 25. Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Think about that. Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, who was with God in the beginning and will be with God on the throne in the end, came down to earth and lived in this way. And while he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. He wasn't entrusting himself to Pilate. He was entrusting himself to God that God would be his judge. He wasn't worried about getting justice for himself in the moment, in any way. He was looking to his Father God in heaven and saying, Lord, judge rightly between me and these. He committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. Verse 24. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter argues to the servants here that the reason you should suffer while doing good is because this is what your Savior did. He he came to this earth to fulfill a calling, to save the world in a perfect life. And he did so when he was reviled, when he was persecuted, when he was hung on a tree. He did so yet without sin. He endured every temptation, every uh, accusation that any of us can ever walk through, and yet went to the cross without sin. And by doing so, it says he bore our sins on his body. We can't understand that, right? This is the belief in substitutionary atonement, right? We believe that the penalty we deserved for our sin was taken by substitution in the Lord Jesus. By a perfect life lived by the Son of God, he could crucify himself, he could die on a cross. And our sin will be nailed there with him. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to our sin, that the sin that continues to rage in us, that we would wage war against it, and rather than, rather than falling to it, that we would rather live to righteousness. Just like I said last week, it is not about figuring out where the line is, Right? We talk about waging war against sin. It's not about trying to figure out where is the line of sin. Because it's either this or that. It's either we're living toward our sin or we're living toward righteousness. And so when you get this picture that this is what Christ did for us, you're caught up in the glory of his name is Jesus. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the almighty God. And no longer do I have to worry about what is sin and what is not sin. I just look on the face of Jesus and run after him and allow him to do the work that is in my soul. 
And it's in that context that, that those around you, right, the masters that are around you, the emperors that are around you, the governors that are around you, the leaders that are around you can look into your life and say, that person's motivated by something that is out of this world because they do not bow to the fleshly desires that we have authority over them in. Rather, they bow to something that is different than that. And so when the Lord comes to these people that God has placed around you, they can see and glorify God in heaven because they're looking at a person that is, glorif- that is operating under an authority that is out of this world, living unto a righteousness that was not bought on our own behalf, or that was not bought in our own strength, but rather on, on Christ's strength. He bore our sins that we might die to our sin and live to righteousness. We've been healed from a sinner's body. We were like straying sheep, and now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That picture of shepherd and overseer is is to remind us, who are we working for? Who are we living for? Yeah, I've got a teacher, right? Yeah, I've got a coach. Yeah, I've got a boss, right, that is over me in authority. They, They might be operating unjustly upon me, but guess what? I can treat them with all respect because in the end, I'm not working for them. I'm working for the Lord, right? He is the overseer of my soul. I don't have to fear the man who can destroy my flesh. Rather, I fear God who can destroy my very soul. And so the Lord Jesus has returned us to a rightful place under the true shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so, yeah, Peter can look at even a Christian who is enslaved and say, this is your duty, sir or ma'am that you do good to the one who you are enslaved to. As a servant of God, whether, you're, whether the person you're enslaved to is just or gentle and, and un, or whether the person is unjust or whether they're good and gentle, serve them just as though you're serving the Lord. And so I want to close with these three things. First this, work for the Lord. Work for the Lord. Um, If you don't have a perspective of your life and your profession or whatever it is, um, that the Lord is your boss, then then start making making the Lord your boss. It it doesn't matter who's in authority over you in the flesh, okay? That person's going to change, and sometimes they're going to be good, and sometimes they're going to be bad. The Lord gives and takes away, right? Okay. Sometimes you're going to have a good boss, sometimes you're not. But the fact is, it doesn't matter when your true boss is the Lord. Because every situation he's brought you into, he's brought you there with purpose and with a plan. And when he's your boss, he's the one that advances you. And he's the one that takes you out if he needs to take you out, right? And he's the one that demotes you if you need to be demoted and humbled. Like, entrust yourself to employment under the Lord Jesus. He's the best boss. He actually cares about your heart. He doesn't care about your paycheck. Sorry. He, he, he doesn't care about you getting a bigger house or having a littler house or whatever. He doesn't care about any of that. He cares about your heart. It is the most important stewardship that we can have. And so stop working for a boss of this world and start working for the Lord. He cares about your very soul. Colossians 3.23 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Jesus. What is the inheritance? Is it, you know, hills of cattle? Is it a fancy car? No. no. Okay, yeah. Is it a big house? Yeah. What? Yeah. Yes? I said there's a big house. Oh, yeah, that's true in heaven. A big, big house. Yeah, yeah, okay, gotcha. Yeah. To my father's house. Yeah, but, okay, but right. The inheritance is in heaven, right? It's an eternal reward that we're working for. We're not working for earthly things. Work for the Lord. Second, work like the Lord. Work like the Lord. Jesus was called to a profession, to be our Savior. He was called to a job, right? Jesus came to earth to do a job, right? He was born as a little baby in Bethlehem. He was raised as a carpenter's son, which he did well, okay? And ultimately, his real job, his real calling, was to die on a cross for us and to bear our sin. And he did that. In verses 22 and 23, again, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. He, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Work for the Lord and work like the Lord. You're called to a profession. God has given you gifts and abilities. He's given you some sort of job to do. Work at that job like the Lord worked at his. Don't have deceit in your mouth. Even when someone reviles you, don't revile back. Even when you suffer, don't threaten people, right, with your position. I mean, you might be above someone, have the authority to threaten people for, you know, whatever it may be. Don't be that person. Be Jesus. Work like Jesus. And finally, work with the Lord. The whole point of what Peter is challenging believers with in this context is that we are making disciples of Jesus. So let's recognize that Jesus is working with us in this. That's why Peter can say to a group of slaves that are Christians, endure it. Endure it for the glory of God because the whole purpose of you being where you are is that some might call upon the Lord and also be saved. Matthew 28, 16 to 20 says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Work with the Lord. He's with you. Acknowledge His presence in your workday. Okay? You're going to go to work tomorrow, you know, if you're a Monday worker. Okay, kids are not going to go. They're on screen. Blah, 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 whatever. They're on summer break. Peanut gallery here. Um, you're going to go to work tomorrow, and I just want to encourage you that the Lord is in your work. He's got you there for a reason. And that reason is about the kingdom of God. Right? And you might not see that fruit today. Okay? You might not see that fruit tomorrow. But the ultimate goal of God having you wherever he has you is that those around you might call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. 
and place their faith in him and worship him with their lives. So work with the Lord. Wherever he's called you, know that there is a kingdom calling in your vocation. He's called you there for a purpose. So I challenge you as, as we look at this passage from Peter, as he challenges even slaves to be obedient to their masters, whether just or unjust, that these three things we can take away boldly. Work for the Lord. Work like the Lord. And work with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for what you've done for us. Uh, you had one job and you did it, Lord. And we're thankful for that, God. Um, we will never stop being grateful uh, for what you did for us on the cross, that while we were enemies of God, while we were still sinners, yet you died for us. And God, we are so thankful that you've called us to come into partnership with you in this life. And so as we look at our work and as we look at um, teachers or bosses or um, uh, people that are in authority over us, Lord, I pray you'd give us hearts like Jesus. That we would work for the Lord Jesus, that we would work like him, that we would take on uh, suffering and reviling and not return it with more reviling and not return it with threatening, but rather we would do everything as though we're working for you, Lord. Or that we would see that, the, that there's an opportunity here in this world as Whatever time you've given us here, you've given us an opportunity to be your ambassadors on this earth, to be people who uh, seek out those to minister reconciliation to, to compel those around us to be reconciled to God, not on the basis of anything we've done or anything they could do, but rather on the basis of the obedience of Christ Jesus under the cross. I'm so glad, Lord Jesus, that you did not take any shortcuts. But Lord, you endured the suffering. You scorned the shame of the cross, looking forward to the joy that was set before you, to be set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so God, I pray we would have that same eternal disposition, that we would know our reward is the same as Christ. It is eternal. It is in heaven and that would color everything we do and everything we set our hands to. That we would work as though we're working for the Lord. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.